What's up? Hope everybody's uh, gearing up for the holiday and made it safe or will make it safe on their travels out here in Los Angeles looking at the Tuesday deal. You probably saw that somewhere on social media, the north and south, I think on the 405. Is that what they're calling it out here, Kyle? The 405? Yes, sir. We saw those pictures. How do you feel about everything? You're a scooter electric bike guy, so this isn't even, you don't yeah, even care. I, I don't really mess around near or on the 405, so I don't, I don't You have don't have a car, correct? No, not anymore. What happened to it? Impound? Repoed? No, I bought a bought a lemon. I bought a convertible Volvo from like 2003 when I came out here and transmission went in like eight months. Did you call the guy that you bought it from? Yeah. They're, dude, they, they, they gave me the papers. They were like, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. They put like $40,000 into this car, it seemed like. I saw all the stuff and it just wasn't meant to be. I'm going to go ahead and guess they didn't put $40,000 into that me car. Me too. Me yeah. too. The papers uh, look legit, though. They got a good paper guy, if that's the case. Now that I think about it, you know how easy it would be to forge paperwork? Did you have anyone look at it? If you bought the used car, did you bring it anywhere to be like, hey, look, if I'm going to buy this car, I want to bring it to a neutral voice here, a mechanic that can look you at know, it. You know, I was 22. I drove it around the blocks a couple of times. I was like, wow, this thing has some balls. Let's get it. That was huh. that was about the extent of my uh, checking out. Well, you learned a lesson there. Where Valuable. is it now? Did you sell it for parts or is it parked somewhere? Uh, it was parked in my apartment spot and uh, with no transmission, and they noticed that it had no registration, so they said I either had to get it registered or uh, get rid of it, so I junked it. That's not How much money you get for that, junking it? Mm, I don't even want to tell you. It was less than $200. Really, you could be paying them to take it off your hands. So Yeah, you're right. Right. If you look at it as a net positive. Okay. Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Show is brought to you by State Farm. And I know Kyle used State Farm to insure that Volvo. If you're fumbling with insurance, State Farm agents are here to help because with over 19,000 agents, they're local to you and available to help. Whether you connect in person, by phone, or through the State Farm mobile app, agents are here to help. So go with the one that has coverage and agents you can count on. State Farm, talk to an agent today. There's been a lot of requests from my inner dudes, like my inner circle. Um, for more Kyle updates, they want to hear about you becoming a janitor after college. That was with a college degree. You were still a janitor? No, it was during college. After during. college, I graduated to grounds crew. Much better gig. Much better answer on that one. We have Christo Doyle, who's been the executive producer on American Chopper, Gold Rush. Um, he's worked with Lance Armstrong. He was also on Dirty Jobs. And he is as big a name as there is in good reality television. We also went to Vermont together, a.k.a. the University of Vermont, a.k.a. the Public Ivy. They used to tell you on the tour back in the early 90s. And he's uh, he's a great guy. And I've, I've talked to him before, and he's really on top of his stuff. And I want to talk reality television with him on a weird Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I'm going to do a little NFL. It's the schedule stupid. It was something I was going to do with Chris, but he and I went pretty long, especially when we started doing over-under celebrity net worth. But we also want to remind you that Drinkworks is sponsoring the podcast because we are brought to you by Drinkworks, home bar by Keurig. You know those high-end premium espresso machines people have at home? Drinkworks home bar is just like that, but it makes cocktails instead. With over two dozen drinks to pick from, there's a variety for someone to try something new. That's amazing, actually, the more I think about it. I didn't even know what this was. In the middle of the read, I'm like, hey, does that mean slow, comfortable screw up against the wall? That's actually a drink. I don't even know if they're going to be thrilled that I said that, but there's a lot of moving parts in that one. It's part screwdriver. Um, there's even a little, that Galliano bottle that you see that you're like, does anyone ever use Galliano or is it just a state law? Is it a federal law 
that every bar has to have a towering bottle of Galliano at the back at the very top that is never, ever used because it's a floater in that drink. So I wasn't trying to be sensual. I was just telling you, like, when people would be like my early days of memorizing everything and I'd be the encyclopedia and people would be like, hey, what's a slow gin fizz? I'd be like, mm, it's slow gin and ginger ale. Um, what's a Cuba Libre? You guys remember that from cocktail? It's just a rum and coke. Um, I don't know. Is this even a good read anymore? Probably not. What makes it even cooler, though, is that it's made with premium spirits, real ingredients from our boys at Drinkworks, uh, real ingredients and natural flavors. So, you know, it's going to taste good this week only this week only. You can receive 50 percent off the manufacturer's price by going to drinkworks.com. And at checkout, the discount will automatically be applied. No codes needed, available in limited states. And remember, please enjoy responsibly. Again, go to drinkworks.com, 50% off the MSRP. So there you go. Before we talk reality TV, what's your favorite reality TV show, Kyle? Real quick, go. Uh, Storage Wars. Storage Wars. Big fan. You kind of, it's one of the great teases. I mean, nothing tops the tease of... uh, what the hell's my guy's name? I've interviewed him. Legendary name, DC. Maury Povich. Maury Povich. All right. Maury Povich, there's no greater television tease than we're going to find out if it's your kid next. Okay? <laughs> I don't care who you are. You could be the Federal Reserve chairman. You could be a homeless person. You're sticking around for about three minutes to find out if that's that guy's damn kid. <laughs> Second to that is only who's going to win this bin of crap and what's in it. But I'd have to tell you on every storage war that I've watched, and I don't really love that show, the rounding up of estimates on oh stuff my God, is it's egregious. It's, it's, egregious <laughs> it's, it's hurtful. It's so bad. That's a $40,000 like, oh, locker. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd be like, oh my God, look at this box of Legos that are broken. It's 300 bucks there. Bucks. And you're like, I remember there was one, the one where I was like, I'm out. I'm out. It was when I went, you know what? I don't care who wins this bin. I don't care who wins this, this storage war. It was the guy. It was just a bunch of old Crayola markers. There were like <laughs> 20 of them that were bound together by a rubber band. And he's like, up, oh, use markers, 20 bucks. <laughs> he went, where, where's the market for used Crayola markers? Where is that secondary market that strong? Is this a market that... Maybe we just do a show just on that, because if you're telling me you can take year-old markers from Crayola that are bound together by a rubber band, those things had to be like a decade old. If you're telling me those are worth 20 bucks used, then, then there's all sorts of lies being told about stuff. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll do some stuff. More on Gold Rush. Probably not going to talk Storage Wars, but I just... I find the storage wars rounding up of what the guy actually bought. Like somebody has to be better at that. So that's why I don't like that show as much, Kyle. I'm sorry. No, you're right. Yeah, but the, all the shows have their flaws, right? I mean, Gold Rush, it's like, oh my gosh, something broke. <gasps> is Oh my God, is that guy going to die? Oh, he didn't die again. I'm not rooting for a death to follow through on the tease, but there's a lot of did this guy almost die teases in some of the Gold Rush shows where you're like, nope. And again, I'm not rooting for that outcome. It's just a little misleading. Speaking of misleading, let's do a little NFL here because a lot of the explanation about who a team is or who they are not is just basically the schedule. And I've done this segment before where you just like, look, it is the schedule. Stupid. Um, Cleveland is going to be the first example. Going into the week, uh, this past week, they had the toughest 
strength of schedule. Now, the strength of schedule is a bit of a moving target thing, and we're going to go over a couple of these teams. I've got a handful of teams that I want to talk about where Cleveland is now five and six, and we told you this was going to happen. We told you a couple of weeks ago, hey, they have the easiest or second easiest, depending on what you're looking at, schedule to close the second half of their season. Cleveland's going to end up winning some football games. Think how brutal their schedule was. Now, they come out, Tennessee, all the hype, and it was awful. Remember, they had 20 penalties, 18 accepted. It was just they got dump trucked in that game. They beat the Jets. They lose a close game to the Rams, but we really weren't sure who the Rams were. And now we realize that all year long, this malaise that we've had about the LA Rams is accurate. Uh, This is a four-week, let's see here, five-week stretch. Rams loss. They're the team that beat the Ravens, one of their two losses in Baltimore. At the Niners, Seahawks, and at the Patriots. And then they actually had to go to Denver. And even though Denver's record isn't great, they're probably close to a 500 team and nobody goes up there in Denver. So if you really wanted to make this argument, that is a brutal six-week stretch. Rams, Ravens, Niners, Seahawks, Patriots. If you want to trim off the outside of it, you go Ravens, Niners, Seahawks, Patriots. I don't think anyone else has had a four-game stretch that is that bad. So at that point, you're like, this team is two and uh, six. Yeah, two and six. Like, they're awful, but then they play the Bills. Win a close game there. They beat the Steelers. We all know what happened in that game. They beat up on the Dolphins, 41 points. Most points scored in a game this season. They're now at five and six. Are they better? I don't know if they're better, but I know the schedule a hell of a lot easier. And they've got Pittsburgh. They've got Cincinnati. They've got Arizona. One more with the Ravens, and then they've got Cincinnati. They have four very winnable games the rest of the way. This team could be 9-7 and seven and could be in the playoffs. And there will be all sorts of stories that tell you, yeah, they just started figuring it out. You know, they, they did this. They started buying out. They never gave up on Freddie Kitchens. All of those could be accurate. And they started using Odell more. Or maybe the teams they're playing just aren't as good. New England, they're now 17th in strength of schedule. Now, if we look at New England the rest of the way, we knew Steelers, you know, they destroyed that Pittsburgh team 33-3 with Roethlisberger. I guess now we're going to say retroactively Ben was hurt, but like that dominant win never seems to count. Then it's Dolphins, Jets, Bills, which was actually a close game. And that was the first time with Brady in the offense. You're like, wait a minute, what's going on with this team? They beat up on the Redskins. Um, the Giants game was oddly competitive in the first half. It was one of those bad first half games again, and then they put up 35 on them. Shut out the Jets. That's the IC Ghost, Kanye slash Sam Darnold game. They beat the Browns, where the Browns are actually able to run it on in there a little bit. And then Baltimore, who now Baltimore is humiliating everybody, that 37-20 at their place doesn't even seem that bad. And yes, there are certain plays where you could argue, if you were a Pats fan, that they were in that. But you know what? If you're going to do that, then you also have to point out the Ravens were just giving New England field position in the first half of that one. They beat the Eagles. They beat the Cowboys. I think those are good wins because they are whether it's at Philly or Dallas at home, it just they were grinded out games where their defense helped them and Brady's just going to find a way at the very end. Uh, and you could even say that that's being a little generous. But New England has this stretch where it's going to be Philly, Dallas. And even though Philly's record is what it is, and we're going to get to them in this little group here, I don't think Philly's a team you just go, hey, we're going to go in there and beat them because they're easy, despite all their injuries on offense. They're at Houston. New England could lose that one. They've got the Chiefs that the metrics still really like, despite what we think of their defense. Their run defense is terrible, but their overall DVOA numbers are very impressive still for Kansas City. And I think that surprises some people. 
I would almost at this point rather have a Kansas City offense than maybe even a New England defense because I don't know if New England, despite that great secondary, are they really going to keep Kansas City in check here that many times when you're giving them 10 to 12 possessions a game? Are you going to have enough offense to keep up with them? But that's basically what we're looking at here where New England, let's include Pittsburgh as an easy game there if we're talking Roethlisberger's injury, but we knew as they were running into this thing at 8-0, and the schedule, 17th again in the NFL strength of schedule, was this team really that dominant? And it had as much to do with, look, we're going to give New England the benefit of the doubt, but a lot of it was schedule. San Francisco, their strength of schedule is now 31st. And we're going to do something here that's annoying, but you know, Richard Sherman, who's an emotional guy, he's always used those emotions to be a terrific corner, and I'm not going to fault him for that, but he's, he's doing this Garoppolo argument that doesn't even exist. Like it's not that anybody's saying Garoppolo sucks. It's just that we're like, hey, we thought he was going to be a little bit better because the hype for Garoppolo was probably too much because of the one loss record. I'm sorry, Kyle. I know you don't like this stuff right no. now. But he's a middle-of-the-road NFL quarterback, and I don't think there's any evidence that tells us he's anything different than that. But then Sherman's like, you know, we run for 300 yards, and he doesn't pass enough. No, no, no. Hey, Richard, we're, we're just watching the games, all right, man? Your defense is insane. I think I'd pick you against New England. I might even pick you against Baltimore this week. I'm not ready to do that necessarily. But if you go through their record, Tampa, Cincy, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, L.A. Rams, Redskins, Panthers, Arizona, and then they lost to the Seahawks at home, Arizona. But that beating of Green Bay, that win, that game is the one where I go, okay, I know that they're 31st in strength of schedule, that's San Francisco, but that was a demolishing of Green Bay. Now, if you want to do the I don't know, this isn't even like a transitive property thing here, but you could go through Green Bay's schedule and go, where's the really good win there? Beat the Bears, beat the Vikings. I think that's probably it. There's like good wins. Is there a great win there? They beat the Broncos. They lost to the Eagles. They were destroying the Cowboys in that game. So looking back on that one, 34-24, there's a few college football games where I go, we shouldn't call that a one-score game. We shouldn't call, call Ohio State against Penn State a close game retroactively. We shouldn't call Oklahoma against Texas a close game retroactively. Yes, Bama and LSU was a one-score game, but LSU was the better team for 60 minutes, and that's the difference between watching and then just going back and looking at everybody's resume. Green Bay was much better than Dallas. They scored some points late to make it look close. Then wins against Detroit, Oakland, at the Chiefs, but it's Matt Moore. And then I don't know what happens to come back. Actually, we should call him chip on the shoulder, Aaron Rodgers. But when he comes back to California, he can't get any yardage against the Chargers. And then the Niners, they were awful in that game against San Francisco, their other win against the Panthers. When I did pose that question of, wait a minute, do we want to go through this and say, is Green Bay really a top four team, a top six team in the NFL? Where is their great win? Harder response of the week was one Packers fan. And don't let this, don't let the Midwest vibe overshadow that Packers fan can actually the Milwaukee guy who's Bucks Packers maybe in a little Badgers in there that guy can be pretty vicious on social media so yes harder response of the week was they have eight impressive wins because everyone in the NFL is impressive Ooh, ooh, got me that stings what else do we have here okay how about Chicago it's the schedule stupid Chicago is now five and six. They lost to the Packers week one when everybody was picking Chicago, by the way. Uh, they beat Denver, the Redskins, the Vikings win. Nice win there. And that was when we started to hate Kirk Cousins. But since then, I think we like Kirk Cousins. And then it was just Lost City, L Raiders, L Saints, L Chargers, L at the Eagles. They beat the Lions. They lost to the Rams and they beat the Giants. The Bears have the Lions again. 
And so they're going to be six and six. And are people going to talk themselves into this? Are you really going to listen to the naggy excuse that a lot of the plays that Trubisky had that were positive were called back because of penalties and it wasn't really on him? Like, Are you going to try to tell us the Trubisky we're watching every week doesn't actually exist and that he's mysteriously sneaky good and that they're going to be six and six and you're going to start talking yourself into this? No, they'll have won three of four and three of the wins are going to be the Lions, Giants, and Lions again. And who knows? Like, Are the, are, are the Bears so good now? Are you so confident about the Bears and Khalil Mack having a little momentum here that you're just going to go ahead and pencil him in a W on the road on Thanksgiving? knowing what that game means to that Detroit fan base. I don't even know if I would do that. But then they've got the Cowboys, then the Packers, then the Chiefs, and then who knows what the Vikings are going to be looking at doing in Week 17. But the Bears are going 6-10. and 10. All right, mark it down. Philadelphia. Philadelphia has now lost four of six. Those losses were the Vikings, Cowboys, Patriots, and Seahawks. Guess who's going to lose to those teams? Almost everybody. Now, you hope in the NFL you kind of get one, those weird what-the-hell outcomes like Atlanta dominating New Orleans a couple weeks ago. But Philadelphia beat the Redskins. They beat the Packers. They beat the Jets. They beat the Bills. They beat the Bears. And those are their five wins. And anytime they've played anybody good other than the Lions, they lose. But the rest of the way for Philadelphia, as I pointed out on our State Farm Safe Bet, is after I said they would lose to Seattle – Look out, because at five and six, they've got Miami, they've got the Giants, they've got the Redskins, they've got the Cowboys, and they've got the Giants. Four out of five very winnable games, and maybe nine and seven. Probably not good enough to be in the playoffs in the NFC with the depth, but are we going to start to say that Carson Wentz figured it out? Are we going to say, hey, you know what, they're starting to, they're starting to make the right adjustments. You know, this team, they've, they've really bounced back. They believe in their head coach. Or are four of the five games really easy the rest of the way? And this is an Eagles team that I, as many, guilty of getting excited about in August. But let's remember, they went 9-7 and seven last year. They went 9-7 and seven and, I don't know, was it the Saints game where Wentz was awful in that one too and we were doing the exact same stuff or maybe we were just saying he was injured again. So that leaves us with one more and it's Buffalo. Buffalo has done a good job for a team that, you know, let's face it, when they were six and five and one, six and two, and now they are eight and three. Like, hey, look at Buffalo. Look at the Bills at eight and three. Their losses are the Pats, the Eagles, and the Browns. That was a good win by the Browns. Is there a really good win in there? Not really. Jets, Giants, Cincinnati. At Tennessee, I'm going to put that down as a good win, not great win, because I still, you know, Tennessee's constantly, every time I look up, like, oh, are they good again? Oh, wait, they lost. And they're a 500 team. Um, Dolphins, Redskins, Dolphins, Broncos. The rest of the way, the Bills have at Dallas, the Ravens, at the Steelers, the Patriots again, at the Jets. They're probably going to finish up at two and three. So maybe that's 10 and six. And are they good? I don't. I just think there are there are certain things, kind of like the Big Ten West, where you can look up and a team has a great record, and you go, "How did that happen? Like, who are they playing?" And that's not to knock Buffalo, because let's face it, this is an improvement for Buffalo even to be winning some of these games. But just remember that the next time you watch a TV show, a couple weeks removed from this, and the graphic bar says, "Do they believe in their coach now? Has this quarterback figured it out? Why has this defense improved? Look at these numbers the last few weeks." Usually, it's just as simple as looking at who they're playing, and that's what's going to happen. It's happening with Cleveland as we speak. You know LSU's favorite furniture. It's from Burrow. Get it? 
As the weather gets chillier, a lot of us start craving cozy nights in. Make the most of your homebody time with a new Burrow couch. The holidays are coming up, and chances are you'll be having guests over instead of showing them the beat-up old hand-me-down couch. Show off a brand-new Burrow couch this Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You might be upgrading your space with a new TV or gaming system. Shouldn't you upgrade your furniture, too? Upgrade to a new Burrow couch and maybe a new Burrow rug. Burrow sofas are customizable. Pick your fabric color, leg finish, armrest style, and length. Even add a Chase Lounge or Ottoman or both. I'm going to tell you right now, Chase Lounge, they don't get enough respect. And you end up sitting in the normal seat. And I'm telling you, if you just make the effort to slide over to the Chase Lounge, you're going to go, why don't I do this more often? This is incredible. I'm just telling you right now. Burrow's durable fabric is naturally scratch and stain resistant. And each sofa comes with a built-in USB charger. They're easy to move and easy to set up. That's the best part. You can do it yourself in just minutes or add and remove seats as needed. And Burrow offers more than just sofas. Their genius sleep kit transforms your comfy sofa into an even comfier bed. And they just launched a collection of functional, affordable rugs. It's hard to find a good rug, okay? I never know what I'm looking for. I don't trust any of the guys. Burrow's like, look, we don't need massive markups. I never understand why the rug places are always on sale. But I'm just telling you right now, for a dude, our expertise has never been rugs. That's just jeans. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping at burrow.com slash Rosillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W, dot com slash Rosillo for $75 off a new burrow sofa. We got Christo Doyle, now the executive producer and host of The Dirt after Gold Rush. His credits include American Chopper, Gold Rush, Monster Garage, Dirty Jobs, a bunch of other things. I'm lucky enough to know Christo a really long time. We've had him join us on ESPN in the past. So we want to talk about his career, reality TV, and all that stuff. And uh, let's spend some time together, man. How are you? It's good to catch up. I'm doing great, Ryan, man. It's always good to talk to an old friend. <laughs> I know. I know. We're getting older. It's, uh, But you look good. I was, go I was, way back. I was watching uh, The Dirt, and I always think you know everybody's paths are different. If you were to map this whole thing out, you're kind of in a spot now where you never thought it would happen. Uh, how do you feel? Do you still feel weird being on TV as a guy that was always behind the scenes for a couple of decades? Oh, it's super, super weird. I mean, it's by far the strangest development of my career. You know, I mean, I think I got into this to be behind the camera, um, and I still think that's where I belong, honestly. But, you know, it, it's really weird to watch yourself. It's really surreal to be in that seat. Um, you know, just yesterday, I got my first rough cut of the new season of The Dirt, and you know, I had my kids and my wife in here, and I was like, look how terrible I look. I mean, what a joke. My hair is a joke. I've got three chins. Like, what in the hell am I doing on television? But, you know, it's it's definitely it's definitely something that takes a lot of getting used to. All right. For those that don't know, and we've, we've done this before, you started, I don't know, would you say you started at ESPN? They put you in the PA program, right? Which I know is just basically set up to grind people out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, so my, my family, my mother is a, is a TV person. She's been a, she, you know, I grew up watching my mom produce news. She worked at nightly news and then the today show. Um, and so I, I kind of grew up watching TV, producing stuff, you know, through my mom and she got me some incredible internships in college. I did, you know, conventions for NBC. I did an inauguration for NBC. So I kind of got my foot in the door there. Um, and then, you know, after I kind of uh, yeah, I had like a year where I did whatever the hell I wanted. And after that, I, I went down to Atlanta to work for NBC in Atlanta, but ended up working for the Olympic Committee. Um, and then that that transitioned to into NBC Sports and working for the golf tour for a little while. 
Uh, and from there, I got hired, uh, you know, because ESPN and, and NBC overlap for a while on golf coverage. And ESPN um, hired me to be a PA up in Bristol. And, um, you know, I think I, I served about 14 months there. Um, you know, it was incredible. Absolutely, the, you know, the most incredible learning grounds you can you can possibly get into early on in your career. I mean, you're, you're a PA and, you know, you're making no money and working 70, 80 hours a week, but you're producing packages that get thrown on television. So it's, you know, it's kind of trial by fire. And that's definitely where I, where I caught the, uh, the producing. Bug. Yeah, I did notice you said serve 14 months though. So were you the kind of guy that like shows up there and goes, Hey, this is an unbelievable opportunity. And you're a huge sports fan. I mean, you were as into sports as anybody that, you know, we were hanging out back in college. Um, you were just like, I can't do this Bristol thing, correct? Yeah, I mean, it kind of got to that point. I mean, I, I was living kind of, you know, in, in what, Newington, Connecticut, by myself with a dog. And you're working an incredible amount, you know. It's just, I, you know, I did college football for a while. Um, you know, so you'd work all week prepping uh, for the games, and then you'd work Saturday for, you know, 14 to 16 hours. And I think, you know, most people just burned out, Um you know, and, you know, you're surrounded. I think we had like 96% dudes that I was working with. And, you know, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere working nonstop. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. I'm not sure if this is a long-term, you know, a good long-term plan for me. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't knock ESPN at all. ESPN was, you know, huge for me and huge for my career. I just decided that I was burning out of sports a little bit. And that's when I actually shifted gears and, and left sports and went into um you know, into more of kind of uh, nonfiction TV. Okay, so how did it become reality? I mean, every now and then it's something that's either a passion or it just sort of stumbles upon you next thing you know, you know, 20 years later. So how did it end up being reality TV and some of the best stuff that's on TV? Yeah, I mean, I went I went from Bristol to work for National Geographic Television. And, you know, I grew up a huge Discovery fan, a, you know, a huge um, – you know, kind of animal lover, you know, kind of old school discovery stuff. Um, and I kind of decided I wanted to get into that stuff. And, you know, for, for me, it was, I want to, I want to be a part of television that is actually, you know, if there is such a thing, that's good television, that that's wholesome television, that you take something away for that you kind of, that kind of blows you away, you know, shows you another world. So I worked at, uh, at National Geographic for a while, working on some of their film stuff and doing National Geographic Explorer. And then my boss and left left and went to Discovery in 1999 and took me. Um, and from there, you know, I just started diving into, uh, you know, making some of my own stuff. You know, I made, you know, I made a really bad space documentary there on the Science Channel early. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. So was American Shopper your first hit? Was that, was that the first thing in, in like the beginning? Like, take us through that, because I imagine that's kind of the thing that puts you on the map of Discovery. And then obviously, I know they, I was researching it all last night and they pivoted to TLC, but I, that had to be kind of the first thing where it's like, all right, this is, I'm going to be a guy in this thing. Yeah, no question. I mean, um, American Chopper, I, I worked on, you know, Miami Inc. early on. Um, that was kind of a hit as well. Um, so it was, um, you know, it was definitely, it was definitely, um, it was, you know, kind of the, the golden age of, of, you know, you could say reality TV, but, you know, I don't, I don't like to think of a lot of the stuff that we did as reality TV, although, I, you know, American Chopper definitely was. American Chopper was a sensation, you know, and that one definitely put me on the map at Discovery because I think you had to learn very early on there, one, how to make the shows and make the shows great and make them better season to season. But, you know, one of the things that, that, most people don't really understand is how much goes into managing these personalities. And, you know, I was able to 
to really get Paul Sr. and Paul Jr. to listen. Um, and I think that really that really resulted in some great shows for for a number of years there. Yeah, I mean, they fought the whole time. And that's one of the themes that I, I think I take out of this. And, I, you know, we'll dig into some of the shows a little bit. But whether Monster Garage, which I love because Jesse James was not, he was the most non-atypical television host ever. Like, I don't think you guys get enough credit yeah. for deciding, you know what, we're going to do this thing. Because I've always felt like TV hosts in a way, and don't take offense to this, and I think I can say it too, but like the people that are kind of successful and the people the decision makes gravitate towards, like you have to be kind of like an exaggerated asshole on TV. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, yeah. like I know what this person is. And Jesse James was like, I'm just me and I'm kind of a dick about it sometimes. And it worked. Like when you think of all of these, whether it's Paul, his son, the Hoffman crew, um, you know, honestly, like you've worked with some massive alpha guys. Who is the toughest guy to work with? That's a to that's a toss up. Honestly, you know, in their own ways, they they were all presented kind of new challenges. But you know, like like I can tell you, I've had some epic battles with Jesse James. He uh, eventually put my uh, cell phone number on Twitter at one point, which was uh, which was unbelievable. Are you serious? Um, I don't think I ever you know, knew I, that. Yeah, he he and I have had some battles, and you know Jesse Jesse is exactly who you think he is. You know he's incredible, immensely talented. Um, you know he's kind of a visionary when it comes to you know building bikes, and now I think he's doing guns. And um, but he is he is prickly, right? And those prickly person personalities are the ones that really pop on television. And Senior Junior are a perfect example of that. Um, you know that show. You know the bikes are obviously the stars of that show, but their relationship, their father son relationship, I think is what kept that show going, right? Because, um, you know, you kind of needed to see where this is going. And, you know, I, those guys, I kind of, in that show, it was kind of a mess because I was kind of in the middle of a, of a family drama. So I was like, you know, almost as much a family therapist there as I was a producer. Um, and it got, and it got ugly. Um, but you know, like, like Lance Armstrong, I did a ton of stuff with Lance when we sponsored, uh, Lance's, uh, discycling team. And, you know, he presented unbelievable challenges. Like, I, how tough was that? I, this is before really come across someone. Right. This is before everything became public, right, Christo? Yeah, this is before it all became public. And, um, you know, my, my job was to basically, you know, collect a ton of footage. And we produced a series called Chasing Lance, where we basically followed Lance for six months leading up to the, I think it was the 2005 tour. Um, and it was nearly impossible to get him to even sit down and do an interview with, with us. And, you know, we were giving him, you know, $10 million a year to sponsor the team. And he, he was just very standoffish. And I, I chalked it up to, you know, kind of being, you know, a la Michael Jordan, where, you know, anything that gets in his way, he sees as, a, as an obstacle and impediment to getting that, that championship. Right. And Lance was very much like Michael Jordan, but what I didn't know at the time is that, you know, he also didn't want the cameras around, you know, after the tour de front stages, uh, because he was, uh, you know, he was doing what he needed to do, you know, doing his illegal activity. And, you know, it, it was just a really wild time, really wild time. So all these guys really present, um, I think the common denominator, you're right, is that the guys that are difficult, the guys that aren't simple are the guys that are going to make some great TV. You know, Todd Hoffman is a challenging individual for sure, you know, and he's, he's a visionary in a lot of ways, but it, you know, that also, that also creates a situation where you're going to butt heads with, with, uh, production. So, you know, to, to just explain it more to people too, like you're a guy's guy. Okay. I mean, you were, you were, you know, back at school, you, you transferred to Vermont, right. After playing football at, was it Bates? Yep. Yep. So I've noticed 
in in my career, like some people that are behind the scenes that are producer types can be really submissive. I, I think agents can be that way too. And it's almost by design, like the agents. And now that I've gotten older and I've been around it long enough, I'll have situations where I look back and be like, oh my God, my agent didn't have my back there. My agent thought I was a loser. Like my agent was just yepping me right. to death. Like they were just being this submissive person that knew, okay, I'm not the talent. I am the agent. I'm the broker. So I need to be, I, I guess, submissive. I just keep using that word. At knowing your personality and knowing that you're having to deal with these guys, and yes, they're in front of the camera. How tough was that for you to not just tell these guys to f off? Sometimes, like I'm, pro I probably happened at some point. But were you just kind of turned back yeah. and being a guy, being I, like, I just stop? I definitely it. told, I definitely told them to f off at times, and and vice versa, right? But I think, I think the reason that those all of these guys would say they respect me is because I called it like it is, you know, like I, I wasn't going to tiptoe around them, you know, like. Like, like in, in Todd Hoffman's case or, or in, in Paul Sr., Paul Jr.'s case, I told both of those you know, sets of guys that, you know, the goal here is to get you guys to season 10, right? The goal here is to make the show last as long as possible, and I know how to do it. And you're either going to listen to me or you're not, right? So, you know, I kind of, I kind of told them, and, I, you know, for, for better or for worse, right? Like sometimes I'm probably, I'm probably saying too much or being too honest, too upfront, too alpha. But, you know, I think in the long run, they really respected that. And, you know, Todd is now not on Gold Rush. And I firmly believe that if he had listened to me three or four years ago, he'd still be on Gold Rush. So, you know, I think, I think they're, they're, you're absolutely right. There is a, I think that's where a lot of these shows go wrong is when the talent takes over and steers the show and ultimately drives it into the ground. And I think you need someone really strong on some of these shows to say, hold on, like, look, this is what's best for the show, which in turn is best for you. So then what was the toughest time? What's the, the maddest, the toughest, the biggest disagreement you've had with any of the guys that you've worked with? The first thing that pops to mind is um, being on a beach in Mexico. Like, uh, I think it was my 40th birthday trip with all my friends. So there's like, you know, like 18 of us at a house in, in, in Mexico. And I'm on the beach in a screaming argument with Paul Jr. Uh, about, you know, keeping the show going and, um, you know, just, just a, just a knockdown drag out. And, you know, I didn't realize it, but all my friends are kind of sitting on the deck, listening to my massive brawl with, uh, with junior. And we had some epic brawls and I, you know, I've had, that's definitely the one that jumps out at me. And, but, you know, I've had some really ugly, uh, conversations with Todd Hoffman as well. And a lot of those have actually made it onto the dirt. And, you know, those are kind of the behind the scenes that was going on with Todd Hoffman, a lot of the drama. Uh, that people don't ever really really hear about is kind of why the dirt was born, right? There was almost more interesting stuff going on behind the scenes than was able to make it into the show, and that's why we decided to to break that fourth wall. So let's go down that road then, because I know you know Gold Rush is my favorite show that you've done. You know how obsessed uh, a bunch of us were, you know, guys that all knew you, and we didn't like the show because of you. We we just loved the show, and then you became a part of it, so it was really cool for us on the outside, and um. I've always kind of, not that I've spent a ton of time, you know, being a, a philosophy guy here and trying to figure out why I like Gold Rush, but I, there's just so many different things where I was like, ah, I don't really like Hoffman. And then I kept finding myself liking the Hoffman crew, despite their absurd, I would say, unrealistic positivity. They're the most optimistic people, despite every single challenge. 
And then I think the more I started to dislike Parker, the more I started to like the Hoffman. So go back a couple of years. Like what happens where a Todd Hoffman ends up off a show where I've read your interviews where I, and I agree with you. I think there's a silent majority out there that like the Hoffman crew more than everybody else. I don't know if that's a, an executive decision or what happens there, but how do we go back a couple of years where you're arguing with Hoffman and then it leads to him not even being on the show, which I thought your dynamic together, especially on the dirt is something that really was kind of the backbone as this thing went season after season. Yeah. I mean, it was an executive decision above my head for sure. You know, and, and honestly, um, you know, this is where I, you know me, and this is where I, I could probably say things that I shouldn't say, right? But the truth is, and I'm going to always speak the truth, the truth is, this is an executive decision that occurred when I was no longer involved in the show. And I, I, I firmly believe that Todd should still be a part of Gold Rush, whether it's the main show or whether it was the spinoff, but I feel like he should still be on Discovery's air because I think... I think they made some fatal mistakes in the end there, like in terms of where they decided to mine, which led to their demise. And I think with the stronger, with, with the, the history that I have with him, I think he probably would have listened to me had I still been a part. Um, and he probably could have righted the ship. And I think he could, I think Todd and his crew, you know, if had they stayed in the Klondike and they dialed in their mining practices, I think they could be getting a good chunk of gold every year. Maybe not as much as Parker, uh, but I, but I just, I, I just firmly believe that, you know, we could have seen a redemption story there. And it, in my opinion, it was a missed opportunity. Is the Hoffman crew decision to go to Ghana the worst single decision in the history of any television show you've ever yeah. worked on? Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. And I think, you know, and this is what I, where I battle with Todd, right? Like Todd, uh, is a, is a really great guy and he, um, he is a visionary in a lot of ways. Um, I think he gets, and he's the first one to admit this, right? He gets kind of distracted by the shiny thing in the corner uh, instead of keeping his eye on what could have, you know, created uh, a stable mining operation for five more seasons. And he got distracted by diamonds in down in, 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 in uh, Guyana. And, um, you know, he's always looking for, and I, you know, he, he sometimes wears the producer hat and he wears it too often. And he's, you know, kind of fancies himself Spielberg. And I was like, Todd, like, I don't really know why we need to go down there. You know, like one, I don't know how we're going to financially afford it Two, how are we going to set up a, a shooting operation down in Guyana and how is raw TV going to handle this? And, you know, and, and so it was a big, big thing and it was a debacle. It was, a, it was the debacle that everybody thought it was going to be. And I think it did a lot of damage. I just, I know I, I told you a little bit about it, but the number of phone calls that went around from dudes when in the middle of the Guyana trip where, you know, the Hoffman dad wrecks their sorter with the backhoe yes. and, you know, the gold thing's a disaster and they're sluicing garbage in like work boots um, that are, because yep. they basically, <laughs> their site was a dump, not a mine. And then they found like one or two diamonds and Todd's like, Guess what, boys? Now we're diamond miners. And like we're just calling each other being like, this is insane. That <laughs> all of a it sudden. And I think I think Todd said it best. I think Todd said it best. He said, We found enough diamonds to make a tiara for a mouse. Yeah. Like they found the most pathetic amount of diamonds, you know? Like if you and I went down there with a shovel and started randomly digging in diamond country, I think we'd find as many, you know. I it was just Nothing went right, and the logistics of getting down there. I mean, I can't even explain to you how insane it was to get, you know, all the crew and equipment, and everything down there. It was just, it was a mess. And I think, 
I think that's kind of a, you know, that's the prime example of, of, uh, you know, the way Todd's brain works. And, you know, that, that brain created some absolutely revolutionary television that, you know, Todd and, you know, a few of the key principles at raw TV are why this show really, really hit early on. Um, but I think that also was kind of led to his, uh, you know, his demise on discovery. But it's a really good point that you've made. Um, and it, and it's, again, it's like when I, when I sit there and be like, why do I watch this show? Why do I like this show? What is it about this reality show that, that I'm, I'm kind of curious what's going to happen next week. Even if there are times where I'm like, this show's terrible. Why are you watching it? And gold rush was not terrible. It was awesome. But the fine line between success and failure, because in the beginning, the Hoffins couldn't be worse at it. I mean, they were terrible. And you almost became yeah. annoyed at their optimism. And then they had some good yeah. stretches. And then, you know, like you said, like instead of just, okay, build on what you've had, stay in the same area, you know, you know the area, you know the water, you, you know all the little things. Why do you add this absurd challenge to be in a foreign country? And, you know, you have really nothing than just one trip. What is it about these shows' success that is related directly to the level of success or failure all the miners have? Or even, you know, look, you could even do it on some of the fishing shows or everything else. Like, everyone can't be a disaster, but at the same time, it can't also go smooth every single week. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in Gold Rush's case, gold fever is actually real. So, like, I've been up there, right? I've looked in that sluice box and seen the gold, right? When you're, you actually do catch a fever, you know, and, and I think that that definitely is a part of why these guys are always trying to, you know, the grass is always greener, right? While this, cl this claim is always better than the next claim. They're, you know, they do have a, a certain amount of fever here. And then, then you add the TV to it, right? The TV is a whole next, another layer for these guys, which is, you know, imagine doing this, right? And, 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 you know, dumping a million of your own dollars into, into making this work. You have that stress, but then you have the stress of, Oh yeah. And then by the way, you're going to have four cameras on you all day, every day. So every mistake you make, every dumb move you make, every failure is going to be, you know, thrown on international television. So that stress is there too. So that's, that's also why they're always trying to be in a successful situation. They don't want to look like fools. Right. And I think that's kind of what, what Todd did uh, to a fault. And I think where, whereas you're like, you're itching to get better ground and to go chase, you know, gold nuggets in a new location, and a lot of times the best thing to do is to set up on kind of decent ground and, and run volume and just get better at it. More with Christo in just a second, including his plans for the future. But Bombas, that's where you want to get your gear, kids. If you're giving everyone in your list Bombas socks this holiday, you deserve a spot in the Holiday Gifting Hall of Fame. I uh, just grabbed some socks from them. They're terrific. The pocket tee is incredible. Really comfy. Felt like... Felt like your dad was wearing it for 10 years, but in the best way possible. And then you stole it from him when you went away. And you're like, this is, and your dad's like, did anybody see my blue shirt that I've had since Yes's second tour? And you go, I don't know. And that's how the shirt shows up from Bombas. I grabbed two of them, a yellow and a blue one. They're unbelievable. And the socks are soft, like made with the softest cotton in the world. Soft. They're built with extra cushioning. So whether you're walking the dog or chilling at home, you're going to be comfortable. Bombas socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed. Like your arches, each sock is built with a specific arch support system that feels like a nice hug for your foot, and they're smooth across the top. No more annoying toe seam. Bombas makes all types of socks, dress socks for work, performance socks for working out, and limited edition holiday socks. They even have a line of merino wool socks that are soft. Those are made, that's like a sweater for your feet. 
Uh, they're warm, naturally moisture-wicking. Bombas is the gift everyone will love, even that person who's impossible to shop for. And for every pair you buy, you know this, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Go to bombas.com slash Ryan Rosillo, R-Y-E-N. R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O, two S's, two L's. Don't forget the E, and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale. November 18th through December 5th. That's Bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Ryan Rosillo. For 20% off, bombas.com slash Ryan Rosillo. So how does the success of a show where, let's face it, I know you're not going to give me any numbers here, um, but, you know, like any TV show, you go, okay, we get to year five, you know, there's this kind of money. And then I'm sure it becomes weird because, uh, you know, Discovery's probably sitting there. The production company's like, hey, this was our idea. This is our pitch. And yes, it's going well, but, you know, we could have just picked other minors too. And then it's like, wait a minute, these guys are great characters. We don't want to lose them on the show. So eventually, like some of these guys start making serious money. So how much do you think the money per season for some of the miners or some of the guys that are running these boats or all this kind of stuff. Like how much do you think that money impacts some of the decisions that they start making as these seasons go on and on and on? I mean, I think it definitely, <clears throat> I think definitely plays a role for sure. Right. Like, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the discovery's job is, you know, that, that includes the executive producer and, and talent management and the general manager of discovery is to kind of keep these guys in check. Right. Like, they do tend to fall in love with themselves. I mean, anyone, anyone who's on television that, you know, is getting recognized at every airport and, you know, you, you get, you know, a million followers on Twitter, you're going to start to, uh, you're going to start to fall in love with yourself. But I think what happens inevitably in all of these shows is the budgets get high and, you know, the, if the numbers start to slip, then the budget, you know, is exceeding where the numbers are. And, you know that means that the show's not gonna the show's not gonna last, right? So the show has to stay affordable because we're still we're still talking about cable TV here, right? We're not talking about you know a network show that's gonna go thirty seasons or you know like Survivor, for example. We we know that this the most of these shows, if they go five ten seasons, that's that's a huge huge feat, right? And once these people and the budgets are pricing themselves out, then then it's just a matter of time before it goes away. Did you like being just feet on the ground in Alaska producing the show? Absolutely. Although, you know, it's, I think that there's a misconception, right? That I'm, that, that the network people are, are making every aspect of the show, right? Like I'm the first to admit here that there is no gold rush without the production company, raw TV that made that show. Right. I think what's special here. And in this case, what's special here is one, it's just an unbelievable idea that hit at the right time when the economy was turning down. Um, Todd's phenomenal talent. The talent was phenomenal. There's amazing people out of this raw TV that makes the show out of London, really, really talented people. And then I think, you know, then you can add in me and say that we just had this incredible thing and an incredible creative chemistry that was able to, to foster it instead of like, you know, instead of crush it to death. Right. So I think the magic is like getting that right formula of people together and honestly, I think one of the biggest things here um, is a lot of times, especially nowadays, there can be too many notes given on a certain show, too many notes from too many people, right? And that can water a show down. Early on in Gold Rush, we didn't have that. We were allowed to like really develop a unique personality in that show. Um, and I think that's really what, it, what, it, what makes these – the ones that work are the ones that cut through, right? They're the ones that cut through all the you know hundreds and hundreds of shows that appear on – 
you know, cable networks every, every day, the ones that cut through are the ones that have a distinct personality and, and a really, truly kind of piercing idea. So what was the pitch then for Gold Rush? Because I'm, I'm going to ask you later on, like, the worst pitches you've ever heard. But what is it about this pitch? Like, take us at the very beginning where it's either a phone call to you or it comes across your desk or somebody at Discovery. Like, how did you sort out where you're like, wait a minute, this Gold Rush thing might be a little different? Yeah, so, you know, the, Matt Kelly, who worked in development at Discovery, um, is the one who first pitched this this show. And um, what happened was Raw TV, they're out of London, they were casting or looking for people in Alaska. So they put something, I believe, on Craigslist in Alaska saying, we're looking for, you know, X, Y, Z. Todd Hoffman saw that, and in true Todd Hoffman fashion, wrote to them and said, you know, that show stinks. I've got a better show. Um, a bunch of me and my buddies are going to go north and mine for gold because we're out of jobs. So that sparked, um, you know, kind of creating the taster tape. There was a seven minute, eight minute taster tape that right away kind of blew everyone away. It was so different. It was, you know, and I think, you know, the double edged sword of being a discovery is that you've kind of have to be first in your space, right? We're not going to make a show that most likely had someone else has done before. And this was first in its space a bunch of randoms going mining in Alaska. Um, you know, and it was, and it was kind of scary in a lot of ways too, but we also saw that it had so many elements of what we know, you know, we needed at discovery to make a show work, you know, one great talent, man versus nature. Um, you know, nature, like Alaska alone has always worked well for us. You know, you've got big machines, you've got some engineering, you've got, you know, and I think the magic sauce in all discovery shows forever has been, wow factor, right? Like you watch a show and you go, holy crap, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, you know, thousands of years ago, gold shot out of the ground and, and got, you know, got basically washed down into, into the bed, bedrock layer. Like that's super cool. And that's super discovery. And that kind of like taps into the little boy or girl in all of us. So what, what is it about us? Like, are we really simple? Is the audience simple to figure out? Do you know pretty much the formula? Hey, people are going to like this. They're not going to like this. I mean, some creative people will be like, oh, this is brilliant, but not enough people got it. I understand kind of the artsy element of, of certain things. I mean, hell, even some stuff we did on the radio show where if there were managers that were like, hey, we really didn't like that. I'd be like, great. I don't. You're not the person I want to like that segment. It, it doesn't. It's not speaking to you at all. So that's a compliment. Thank you. Um, but I wonder if there's this thing that you guys have behind the scenes where the, the difference between yes and no on a show is, is a simple formula where we're very predictable as consumers. I wish there was a formula, you know, I think there definitely isn't. Um, and there, you, the, you, the audience, um, is, is not simple at all. And, and the audience is actually getting more and more complicated as we, as we talk, you know, as, as cable, as people start to cut the cord more, there's more stuff out there. Right. And there's more to, there's more to consume on different, a whole bunch of different platforms. So it's, fig- it's harder to figure out how to, how to cut through, you know, it's much harder to figure out how to, how to make someone stop and notice something. You know, I, I don't, there's, there's the, the hits have been fewer and further between lately. And it's, you know, I think, I think discovery and I'm, I'm not there right now. Like I'm not at discovery, so I don't really know what's going on in their development meetings, but I know that, you know, they have a good sense of, of who their viewer is and, and what they need to be and what that brand means. But, you know, it is rapidly changing and, you know, it's harder. It's harder. I mean, there hasn't been another gold rush or deadliest catch uh, in 10 years at Discovery. It's been very hard to to find that um, to find that show because, you know, so many things have been done. 
you know, everything's kind of been done. Not everything has been done, but, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, the, the low hanging fruit has been done. Um, you know, and so it's, it's definitely trickier. It's definitely trickier for anyone involved in the industry right now. What happened with St. Hoods? It was supposed to be a show about these kind of loosely connected uh-huh. gangs, you know, so, you know, it always got labeled as kind of the Southie thing, but there were different crews and everything. Yeah. Uh, when that, when that happens, go ahead. I mean, it just, it didn't work out. Yeah. I mean, for every, you know, I think it's important to note like that for every, American Chopper, for every deadliest catch, Gold Rush, there's, you know, a hundred things that didn't work, right? And I definitely have a hundred shows of mine that haven't worked, and St. Hood's is just one of them. I'm, you know, I'm sure the audience has absolutely no clue uh, what St. Hood's is because they never saw it. But, you know, I think, I think that, you know, and I can speak for the people, I, I shouldn't speak for the pe- other people that were involved in the show, but for me as the executive producer of that show, I think where we went wrong is we tried to get too ambitious, right? So St. Hood's was about these crews that have, that still do and have always kind of run the neighborhoods in Boston. Um, you know, and, and kind of the guy that we had, um, that was at the cornerstone of that show was a guy named Pat Nee, who, uh, you know, used to run with Whitey Bulger and, uh, the Winter Hill gang. And we kind of got in with those guys and, you know, they were willing to, to kind of, I don't really know why they were, but they were willing to kind of uh, lower the curtain and show us some of the stuff that they do. And I think we tried to be too ambitious in, in capturing, uh, as you can imagine, it was really tricky, right? It was really tricky to figure out how to capture kind of what these guys were doing when a lot of it was, you know, not exactly legal. Yeah, that's um, what I didn't get. I mean, but most I'm, of what- I'm just sorry to interrupt, but like, yeah, it's the Roslindale guys. It's it's Southie. It's you know, yep. I don't know if like, I forget was Mattapan part. I, I don't like, I think there was a Dorchester crew. Like I didn't understand why anybody would like, if they're actively still taking bets and they're, they're intimidating other people. Like there's one thing to go gold mining. Another thing to be like, no, we're, we're kind of these yeah. guys on the fringes of the law and yeah, no problem. And then there was like a thing where a TV got thrown out the window and I was like, was that real? And then guys went to an alley and the cameras didn't have, like, there was just a lot of things that I had a hard time figuring out, like what the hell was actually going on. In yeah. The show. And you, and you were right. And you were right. So I think the, at the, at the heart of it, what I think, what I wanted to pitch the show as is, is just called bookies. And I wanted it to be about the bookies. You know, and I think like where bookmaking is at the center of it, because one, that's not, um, it's most of what they did anyway, right? It's most of where things have ended up back in the day. They did a lot worse, right? They were, you know, it's much more a mafioso type stuff, but now it's mo- largely what they do is bookmaking. So I think we just tried to open it up too much instead of focusing on what, what they really, really did. And then, you know, get delve. Cause I think that one of the most interesting parts of those guys, the, the, what, what, you know, my experience with those guys was, uh, just the, they're huge personalities. I mean, you know, these, these Boston Southie personalities, like, you know, we had this guy named the Tin Man because they said he had no heart, you know, and it's there's these huge personalities. And I think that should have been the strength of the show with kind of bookmaking as the, as the bookmaking and kind of the history of these crews as the, as the spine, but, but we got off the rails and, and in a lot of times you get off the rails on these shows and, you know, you only have a few, you know, a set number of weeks to make these shows and, and then you got to figure it out in post. And I think we, we just kind of cornered ourselves on that one. So how often do you, um, do you get a pitch now? I'm sure at, the, at your peak, you must have been getting all sorts of terrible things. Can you share with us some of the worst pitches you've ever heard? Oh God. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, there, there was, I was mostly production when I was at discovery, I was production and development of my title, but I had so many hours of production that I didn't do nearly as much of development as, as our, as our development team did. 
Um, but you know, there were definitely days when we would watch a pitch tape and, and laugh our, our asses off, you know, like I, it, just some really, really bad. And I think, I think the, the, the pitches that are bad are the ones that just feel completely scripted, right? They're just, that's just not who we are. You know, discovery is different in a, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of history, a lot of these were, we can't do what Bravo does. You know, we, the, you know, the BS, the BS factor, um, with these shows is, you know, we gold rush can't in any way feel like it's not real because it is real. And, and so a lot of the pitches that we would get would just feel like, you know, complete BS. And, um, you know, I think that's, I think it's much easier to make a pitch tape and, and script it. Um, it's much harder to be fly on the wall. Like we have been in gold rush for all these years and make it work. So basically discovery, was was never going to do some sort of repo show with with a tow truck company or something like that. Um. No, no, I you know I, unless we can we can literally be fly on the wall because I think the discovery audience is is really savvy, right? I think you know it's incredibly overused term, but authenticity is absolutely critical, and anything that doesn't feel real gets sniffed out, right? And there's a nothing on discovery isn't real, but like we do have to like make sure the cameras are in position and you know, we have to like produce it. So the show looks and feels right. Right. But if you, if anything is <clears throat> feels overproduced, it doesn't work. And I, you know, I think that's what happened with St. Hoods. And I think that's happened with a lot of stuff that we've done. It's just, you know, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah, and just so I don't want to like, cause I've got one more thought with you. I mean, your, your hit rate versus hey, creatively, like this isn't happening right now. Um, your hit rate's incredible. It's incredible. And it's something you should feel really proud of. I mean, it's just true. Like you go through all Christo's credits, you look through it and you're just like, my God. So what's next for you then? Because, you know, I know this and, and you've alluded to it a bit. You're not technically with Discovery the way you were in the past, but then you were brought back to host the dirt, which was always the right call. You have an intimate relationship with these guys now going on a decade. I hope Hoffman at some point is part of the show again, because like I said, I, the more I started to dislike Parker, the more I started to really miss Hoffman you know even though in the beginning he I was just like what is wrong with this guy and then I realized like Hoffman was the dreamer and you know you want a dreamer when you're home on your couch um and you know I mentioned yeah. that thing about Parker like Parker is young and he had a lot on him and he's really really good at this but I just you know as somebody myself who worked construction most of my life growing up as a younger kid like I don't love when you treat your subordinates like crap and that's kind of what I think Parker's deal is and it it annoys me like I find him unlikable every single season despite his incredible success and and being like a minor by birth so you know congrats to him and and good for him and all that kind of stuff but like I miss the everydayness of of a Todd Hoffman so I don't know what any of that stuff means for you. I think it's incredible that you came back to the dirt because I think that would have felt impossible a couple of years ago when we talked. So what actually is next for you? Well, we have the, the, the dirt is going back to kind of its roots, which is really cool, right? This whole thing started as an after show. Um, you know, it basically started as like just a little behind the scenes thing that we threw up on the internet on discovery.com back in the day. And it, it evolved into an after show and, it, it all, it, you know, kind of always should have been an after show, I think, because it's it's much harder to make a show where you're hyping what you're about to see versus breaking down what you did, just did see. So uh, we're finally going back to uh, a, a true after show. Um, you know, the air dates of the dirt uh, will come out very soon, but I can tell you that you know it's going to be prominently featured in the second half of Gold Rush, and you know it, we have we've already shot a whole bunch of them, and you know it's just it's just a lot of fun for me to get together with these guys. It's you know it's old. It's second, it's second nature. We, we give each other a lot of crap and, 
Uh, it's a really, really fun show. So I think that's what I'm doing in the immediate future right now. But I'm also developing a ton of my own ideas right now. Um, it's a terrifying time to think about starting a production company. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about doing that, um, developing my own ideas. Um, I'd love to get back to, you know, get, making uh, this really great stuff. And I'm, I'm really trying to talk to a lot of different partners and, you know, figure out whether I should partner with a production company or, or start my own thing. But, um, you know, it's an exciting time in TV. There's a million different places for, for great content to air. Um, you know, all, all the, uh, the Netflixes of the world, the Amazons, the Apple TVs, it's, it's exciting for if you're a content maker. Um, and that's, I think that's where my future lies. Well, I can't wait, man. I, I'm really happy, like I said, to see you back under the dirt. I think a lot of Gold Rush fans are because they know how genuine it is for you. And uh, it's just great getting to watch this all from, from uh, just for people that want to know, Christo was, a, was a, not a bad hazer. He was a good hazer. He had fun with it. He was, <laughs> he was not evil. But it's great to watch your success too, Ryan, man. It's like, it's, it's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of fun to watch what you're doing. You have, I mean, I listen to your stuff all the time while I'm mowing the lawn. Well, the first time we ever hung out is is you. Well, I, I want to say, I don't want to get you in trouble here, but I think the statute of limitations are over the kidnapping in 1993. But uh, I just yeah, you can you can talk about. It. I think we're safe. now. I think we're safe now. Yeah, I just showed up. Christo had the cool house. There was like six guys there, and uh, they sat me down on the couch, and everybody bet on every single game on Saturday, and I was like, I'm in heaven. This is unbelievable. And then. Uh, I had to play. <laughs> we had some good times up there, didn't we? Yeah, I I, I hate how much I still miss it, which is really weird. And I think it's a flaw where if I hear a song from that period, I'll be like, oh, man, like that was unbelievable. And then somebody would call and be like, hey, yep. I, I feel like playing Bill Walsh's college football game on Genesis. And I would have to hike all the way down from the dorms at two in the morning to play Pete or somebody. And then he would play with Emmett Smith. And it was brutal because it would just be like <laughs> – <laughs> three four cross block and i you know there's nothing i could do there's nothing I, and then you just take your yep. your beating but you guys are so into sports that i was like oh my gosh these guys these guys are amazing and, and because you were all sort of over it collectively and it's always weird too like if i have a younger guy come up to me and be like hey do you remember this I'm like no i don't remember that like are you kidding me but the younger person always right. remembers the the older stuff and it's just look you were a smart guy then and all of this makes sense that you've had this kind of success so i'm happy for you uh, I can't. I can't tell you that. That means a lot, man. Thanks a lot, and I'm. Uh, I'm just as happy to watch your success too. I mean, we had some amazing times up there, and there's, there's actually, if you think about it, there's so many good, good people that came out of there, and I'm, and I'm glad all of us are doing well. Absolutely, and you can follow him at Christo Doyle. Just don't, don't give him a hard time. All right. Because uh, it's the holidays. You can give me a hard time. I can handle All it. Right, if I can handle good. Jesse James, I can handle it. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for today. We'll be back on Monday. Monday, please subscribe, rate and review as much as you possibly can. And we'll be back with uh, Chris Long. So everybody have a great week. Mm-hmm.